Well, we are continuing this morning our study through the book of Genesis. We began last week and we did all of one verse, so we did well. Uh, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit this morning and we're aiming for five verses. Uh, well, actually another four to get to the first five. Genesis 1.1. Again, we looked at this last week. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know, it really is the kind of the foundation and in many ways the cornerstone of our faith because when we go to the book of Hebrews, the great chapter on faith, chapter 11, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. And it says, for by it the elders obtained a good report. And then we're told that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things that God spoke. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's a really simple verse, but it absolutely demolishes for any believer any notion or possibility of evolution or any of those ideas and theories. Because it's simply saying that look around us, look at the things that you can see. Well, what we have didn't come from that. It means that we didn't come from monkeys because we can see monkeys. It means that uh, reptiles didn't turn into birds, because we have reptiles. The things, they didn't come from that which appears. It means that when we look at the universe, we look around, we can see the planets. But we can also see the sun, so we know that the planets and everything didn't come from the sun. We're told, quite simply, that the worlds were framed by God's words, by the things that God spoke. And God said, let there be, and God created this world. And it really is such a simple thing. You know, If you can deal with that, everything else in the Bible is not a problem. But if you have a problem with that, I guarantee you everything else in the Bible will throw up real challenges for you. You see, the question is, could an all-powerful God have created everything? Well, of course he could. If God is God, then God can do whatever he wants. Yeah, it could have God done it in any time frame of his choosing. Well, once again, the answer's got to be yes. Now, the question often is, you know, why did God take so long? Why did God take six days? God could have done it in six seconds or six milliseconds or six nanoseconds. Well, God chose to do his work of creation in six days to give us a framework and a model. To give us a pattern to order our weeks by. Now, of course, the question then, does God lie? Well, Hebrews tells us that God does not lie. You know, did he or did he not write with his own finger that God created his six days and rest on the seventh? If you're not sure, look at Exodus 31, verse 18. So really, there is no problem Once we understand God and who God is, then God can do what he wants. And the suggestion that God has not given us an accurate record in Genesis is really quite absurd when you stop and think it through. I just want to read this quote to you from Tozer. I love this. Because he simply says, Let a man question the inspiration of the scriptures, and a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter, he judges the word instead of letting the word judge him. He determines what the word should teach instead of permitting it to determine what he should believe. He edits, amends, strikes out, adds at his pleasure, but always he sits above the word and makes it amenable to him instead of kneeling before God and becoming amenable to the word. In a nutshell, what Tozer is saying is you either accept what God says or you're making it up yourself. They're your options. You either take God's word, all of it, or it really just comes down to your opinion. Because if you question any passage of scripture... Well, on what basis do you do that? And why would that particular passage be accepted or rejected and another one not? There's there's no foundation. You either start with God's word and end with God's word, that's everything, or it's all about your own opinion, and that's a very dangerous ground to be trying to build upon. Let's just bow our hearts as we go into this study then. Father, we just ask now that you give us understanding of your word, give us the faith to believe and to trust you. Lord, even in asking for faith, Lord, it's not a blind faith because your word tells us that the attributes of God can be clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So, Lord, that people in this world and even ourselves, we're without excuse. You've given us enough evidence. But, Lord, we still ask that you increase our faith. And, Lord, help us to trust you, not just in believing that you created this world, but that you have ordered everything according to your will, including our own lives. And Father, as your word tells us, the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And so Father, even to the believing that you are directing our paths and leading and guiding us in our lives. Father, help us to have that faith, we pray. Lord, speak to us this morning, encourage us, may we be edified. And Lord, grow in knowledge and grace. We ask in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.
Okay, so what I want to do this morning is just look in a moment at something called the gap theory, and I'll explain why and what that is if you've not heard. Um, start before that, though, with the why question. You know, why did God create everything in the first place? We're going to talk a little bit about the origin of Satan, something a lot of people seem to be confused about. Then a brief look at the age of the earth, because it's one of those hot topics, and uh, I continually find people in my day job, in my working environment, challenge me. And they always try and get me to come out and say things so that they can think, ah, that's, that's silly and that's nonsense. But we'll look at the position that the Bible presents and ask the questions, of, is it valid in the world in which we live with science and the things that science has revealed to us? And then we're just going to end by just talking briefly about light and then evening and morning and day one. So that's where we're going. Uh, it should take us about two hours. So No, just, just it'll be fine. The why question. I remember some years ago, I started, as I do at the beginning of each year, just a journey through the Bible. And I remember just sitting there, and you know, typically if you're going to read the Bible through in a year, you need to spend about 15 minutes a day um, just reading. Normally a couple of two, three chapters of the Old Testament. Um, if you split it, I tend to, so the bit of the New Testament as well, uh, one chapter of the New Testament. That would pretty much get you through the Bible in the air. But I sat down and I read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I was intending just to read on, and I just stopped. And I thought, why? And it really just hit me that all of this was for you and for me. It's really an incredible thought. You know, we ask that question, why did God create the world and the universe and everything that's there? And I mean, the universe is incredible. When you start to look at the vastness of space and the size of some of the planets and so on. Breathtaking. But all of creation, time and space, were created for one primary purpose. We've got a book at the back by Paul Bilheim. It's a great book. It's called Destined for the Throne. And he makes this statement, he says, the sole reason for the universe and all therein is to produce and prepare an eternal companion for Jesus who will reign with him for all eternity. It's an incredible statement. But the more you look at the Bible and what's revealed in the Bible, you realize that that is exactly what the Bible teaches. That God is going to bring together all things in one in Christ Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, males, females, bonds, free, you know, everything in one. Which means that God has created everything for us. Now as we go into the second verse, you know, we find there that the whole earth is covered by water. Uh, interestingly, God does not cause the dry land to appear until we actually get to verse 9. And we find God's spirit is brooding over the face of the waters. Now it's interesting because there's a real anticipation implied. As God is preparing to begin to bring order out of this emptiness. Now, before we go on, we have to just pause because Genesis is, without doubt, the most attacked book in the Bible. You know, lots of books get some scrutiny, and Revelation probably comes a close second. Daniel often gets attacked by the critics, and Jonah and other books that reveal things that the world struggles to understand. But Genesis, I think, is safe to say, is the most attacked book. And I think there's a very good reason for it, because Genesis not only reveals God's plan for mankind, i.e. to walk with God in harmony, but it also exposes Satan as the enemy and the deceiver of mankind. And that is the reason that Satan hates this book. Of course, he hates Revelation as well, because it then details his ultimate destruction. Now, we find when we get to the end of first one and the beginning of first two, already there's contention and people start to throw in things and challenge and if you've never heard of this i'm really glad for you and it's probably best we just leave it that way but you probably will at some point if you carry on studying the bible and things and you're looking at various commentaries come across this idea of the gap theory now verse 2 says and the earth was without form of void and darkness was upon the face of the deep now the suggestion is that actually it should be translated like this that the earth became without form and void and that's the suggestion. Now, it's, this is proposed by a, a Scottish gentleman by the name of Thomas Chalmers in 1814. And he suggested that there was a gap implied here between verse 1 and verse 2. And i.e. that God had created the heavens and the earth, and then there's this undisclosed, undisclosed rather, period of time when, according to the proponents of this view, Satan ruled on the earth over a pre-Adamite civilization. This is the, the theory that's put forward. And this apparently answers the problem of, well, the earth seems to be really old, and of course, science has proven it's millions of years old, so if the Bible's true and science is true, how do we reconcile? Well, this apparently solves our problem. 
You see, supposedly, due to the wickedness of this original world, God sent a flood called Lucifer's Flood, and by the way, you won't find this in the Bible, this is the theory, which apparently destroyed everything from the face of the earth. And it then suggested that what we see in verse 2 is the result of this judgment, that everything had become without form of void, that God had judged the world and flattened everything and flooded it again. And then what we then go on and look at in verse 2 onwards is God recreating and we see that through the rest of chapter 1. That's, that's what's proposed. Now, the reason that people come to this position, it's not just a, a way out, a wacky theory. People try and apply some scriptural basis to it. And the word was there is the word in Greek, heia. Uh, it's a, they say that it's past perfect tense of the verse. So it should be translated, had become. So that's the suggestion. Then the word without form is this uh, Hebrew word, tohu. And again, again, it's as translated, but it just means confused. And then this word, bohu, avoid, is translated. Uh, and you'll see, we'll look at where else this occurs and why people jump to these things. And then, of course, the, the word and there, it's the same, it should be translated but. So these are the things they do. So really what they're saying is we should translate, but the earth had become. And that's the suggestion. Interestingly enough, the Septuagint version of the Greek translation of the Old Testament does actually translate this as but, but I would urge you to be very cautious about the Septuagint translation for a number of reasons. There are some things that it's helpful in understanding, but actually it's not inspired scripture. It's a translation by men. In Isaiah 45, we've just got a line there speaking about God create the heavens, God himself, the form of the earth and made it. He's established it. He created it not in vain. So people say, well, there you go, you see. God didn't create the earth in vain, and yet it's now in vain. So, you know, and the word that we have there, in vain, is that word again, that tohu. So he's saying that God didn't create it, in a sense, empty or without form. So it must have become that way. That's the, the logic that's implied here. You see, they argue that if the earth was not created without form... But that we find in Genesis 2 without form, something must have happened. This is their argument. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. And the heavens, and they had no light. And I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and the hills. And you can read the scriptures in the slides. I'll make this available. It'll be on the website later if you want to read all this in detail. And people use this to say, well, once again, the argument clearly is that something had happened. And we have the words again, that tohu and bohu in the Hebrew. So the suggestion is that God had created the heavens and the earth, then this pre-Adamic world is ruled by Satan, and that rule lasted for an undisclosed period of time, and then men and birds apparently inhabited this world, and then all of this gets destroyed in a global flood, leaving the world in desolation and chaos. And then God recreated in six days, and that's what's often proposed. Now, just to highlight, this has got nothing to do with evolution. This isn't a theory to try and explain away evolution as such. It doesn't negate either, in that sense, a literal six-day creation in one sense, but I'll explain why it's a problem in a moment. But what it's supposedly doing is explaining away the long geological ages that have been proposed by the likes of James Hutter, we'll talk about him in a little while, and also Charles Lyell, back in the 18th century and so on. Now, the proponents of the gap theory have this in common, and that is that they are yielding to man's wisdom regarding the age of the earth. And that is really the big problem. There is no real solid scriptural basis. There's a few words that they're pulling out and trying to explain, but actually it doesn't work when you look at the rest of scripture. You see, a few years before Thomas Chalmers' theory was circulated, we have James Hutton, who's a lawyer and a doctor, had become a geologist, he kind of captured the imagination of the scientific community. And Hudson had claimed that the earth was not young. Now it's interesting, if you read anything by him, it's very clear that one of his intentions was to get people away from trusting the Bible. And very much, his whole idea of these long geological ages was to get people from looking at the Bible and thinking about Noah's flood being the, the cause for so much of what we see in the world and suggesting some alternative. And he had a challenge the accepted idea of catastrophism. That's the idea that everything that we see really is the result of a major cataclysmic event, like Noah's flood and so on. And he proposed an idea known as uniformitarianism. We're going to come have a brief look at that in a while. And saying that well, things actually have been gradually altered over long periods of time. 
And so it's against that background that Chalmers comes up with this suggestion because, again, he hasn't thought to try and undermine the biblical account. And so you've got well-meaning people like Mr. Chalmers who no doubt sincere try to reconcile the Bible to science. The problem is it wasn't reconciling the Bible to science, it's reconciling the Bible to man's theories. And there's a real danger in doing that. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord. Well, that's a pretty clear description of what's actually taken place with this theory. You see, if we look at Genesis chapter 20, it's very clear. We're told there, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thy labor and do thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Any thou shalt do, not any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy maidservant, sorry, the manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. For, now this is interesting, look at that connection, God is saying, we're to work a six day week, and we're going to rest on the seventh, because, because in six days, the Lord made, notice this, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we're clearly told that God has made everything in six days. And that's the heavens and the earth. So it totally rules out this idea that there could have been some pre-Adamic race or anything else. So all there. And then this verse I mentioned earlier, Exodus 31. We're told in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And notice this is actually written with the finger of God. So we're not just challenging a man-made idea here. This is God's word that has stated what God had did, uh, had done. And as a result of this now, we end up with these wacky theories that come on, and people end up subscribing to these things. And again, as I said earlier, Hebrews 6.18 tells us it's impossible for God to lie. Another issue with the gap theory, Romans 5.12 says that it was through sin that death entered the world. Whereas this theory proposes that there was some form of death before Adam's sin. So that's not scriptural. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 15.45, we're told that the first man was Adam. So there couldn't have been a pre-Adamite civilization. And interestingly, just the structure of Genesis chapter 1, the opening verses, we actually read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you notice the ands. It's all connected. And the earth was without form of void. And he goes, and the Spirit of God moves on the face of waters. And God said. And God saw the light. And he goes on. And God, you, you see this is a structure. This is all part of the work that God is doing. And there is no room to impose or imply a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 as has been done, sadly. Carlin Dillich in their commentary just make this comment. They say the um, illiterate nouns tohu and verbohu, the etymology of which is lost, signify waste and empty, barrenness, but not laying waste and desolating. Whenever they are used together in other places, they are taken from this passage. But tohu alone is frequently employed as synonymous with, we have that word, the tohu, non-existence and bohu, nothingness. So the earth, sorry, the coming earth was at first, waste and desolate, a formless, lifeless mass. Uh, and they, uh, and Dutch are recognized as being pretty competent scholars in, in, in regard to the Hebrew. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, more research. If you want to dig into this, there's a great book by a chap called Western Fields. I'm not going to spend any more time on that this morning. I just want to highlight it. It is a view. It is a theory that's out there. You may encounter it. Don't get tripped up by it. It is not scriptural. It's not supported by the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that God created everything, the, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them in six days. Now, I want to go on and talk about the origin of Satan, because this is another important thing to understand at this point, because the whole idea of the, the gap theory suggests that Satan ruled the earth. Well, <clears throat> Genesis one twenty seven. we haven't quite got there yet, but we're told there that God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And we'll look in detail at that verse when we get there. But God created man in his own image. Adam was made like God. Now this is really important to understand, because Satan was not. Satan was an angelic being. Satan, we understand, was this incredible angel who had been given all sorts of privileges, but he was not made like man, therefore not made in the image of God. So, 
Adam outranked Satan in the Garden of Eden. Hebrews 1, 12 is a confirmation of that. You see, what you're going to ask yourself is, what was it that was so great that caused a third of the angels to rebel against God and follow after Satan? First Timothy 3 gives us a hint, and it says there, verse 6, that Paul is speaking to Timothy about those that will be raised up in ministry. And it says, you've got to have someone who's not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So we're told very clearly that it was pride that led to Satan's fall. Now, when we look back in the Old Testament, we've got a couple of key passages. Isaiah 14 is one of them. And we read there, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? That's light bearer is what the name means. Son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend. These are the I will statements. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Some people think that Satan wanted to be like God or to replace God. That's not what he's doing. He's not stupid. He wanted the position that Adam had been given. He wanted to be like the Most High, just as Adam had been made like the Most High. These I will statements, there's five statements there. In Ezekiel 28, we actually find that Satan had been in Eden, the garden of God. We're told, thou sealest up the sun, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, at the time God had created the earth, in the book of Job we find that all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, if all means all, as all would imply it means then all must mean that Satan was included, at that time, unfallen, as Lucifer. That when God is creating the heavens and the earth, the angels are looking on and they're worshipping and they're glorifying God for this work of creation. But there has got to have been that question, what is God doing? What's all this for? Now we said before, when you look at the account we have in the book of Esther, there's an incredible analogy given because we have this individual Mordecai, this Jew, And then his adversary, this man by the name of Haman. And one night the king is struggling to sleep. He gets up and reads in the records that Mordecai had actually exposed a plot against him and decides, yeah, we didn't actually do anything to reward Mordecai. And so he says, who's outside? And they call Haman in. Haman's just arrived at the court. Haman's actually come early that morning because he wants to get permission from the king to kill Mordecai. He hates him. And so the king says, send Haman in then. So Haman comes in and the king says, "Um, Haman, what do you think that the king should do for for someone who he really delights to honour? And of course, Haman thinks, well, who else could he be talking about? So he said, well, um, humbly I would suggest that uh, you you let him ride on your horse through the town and uh, give him your your, your royal robes and give him your, your ring. And and get somebody to walk before him and saying, this is what the the king does to the man whom he delights to honour. And the king says, yeah, it's like that, that's good. Okay, go and do it for, for Mordecai, the Jew. You can see Haman just like, oh, no. And so Haman then has to walk through the streets, parading his enemy, this Jew who he absolutely hates, saying, this is what the king does to the man Sorry, he didn't hear you, Haman. This is what the king does to the man whom he delights to honor. So humbling and embarrassing. But you see in there a, a glimpse of the situation. Satan looking at this world thinking, well, who else would God be creating this for? Pride in his heart. You see, again, we're told here that you know, I was been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was like covering. The sardis, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. He had literally a, a musical system built within him to worship God. It's been said before that all the world's problems began with the worship leader. I'll give you to think that one through. It goes on, verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou was upon the holy mountain of God. But see, Satan already had this incredibly honoured position. Thou was walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in all thy ways from the day thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. Ever thought why it was that Eve was deceived? You know, if you and I had suddenly had a snake come up and started chatting to us, we'd probably run a mile. But Eve... It's quite happy to engage in conversation with this creature, with this being. Why? Well, I would suggest it's because Satan had been perfect whilst he was in Eden. 
and that Adam and Eve had probably known Satan in his unfallen state. And it's only when then Satan goes and challenges Eve, did God really say? She's not frightened by him. As far as she's concerned, he's a servant of God. She doesn't realize the change that's taken place in his heart. You see, in his pride, Satan sought to destroy man and wanted to claim the position and title to the earth for himself. And this is borne out in scripture. In 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. For now, Satan has control over this world. God has given it to him, handed over to Satan. He usurped Adam. He stole the position from Adam. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, But if our gospel be hid, it will be hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, and so on. Satan is referred to as the God of this world, and for now he is. In Luke 4, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Jesus doesn't challenge Satan. He doesn't say, uh, it's not yours, you can't, you can't make an offer like that. Jesus acknowledges that for now, this world has been given over to Satan. For now. There is going to come a time that this world are going to become the kingdoms of Jesus. This world will be claimed by Jesus. But for now, Satan has this world. A lot of people seem to come up with this theory, this idea that Satan had fallen before creation and so on. But that's not borne out by scripture. Satan, I believe, because of all that we're told in the scriptures we've just looked at, purely out of the pride in his heart, thinking that this world was for him, not liking the fact that God was creating it for man. We actually, we're told as well in Corinthians that one day we are going to judge angels. That's quite a sobering thought. Let's just go on on, just, just talk a little bit about the age of the earth. I don't want to labour this point too much. Um, uh, this is one that the world loves to try and pin us down on, because as far as the world is concerned, this has been proven and so on. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 19, he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Who's he talking about? Adam and Eve. When did God make Adam and Eve? At the beginning. We know that because Jesus tells us that he made them at the beginning. Okay, in verse 8 he says, And he said unto Moses, Because of the hardness of your heart suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Now, the beginning has to be the beginning or the beginning isn't the beginning. Does that make sense? You can't have something before the beginning. Otherwise, the thing that's before the beginning would be the beginning. God made Adam and Eve at the beginning. So we know when Adam and Eve were created. There wasn't eons of ages before that, as far as Jesus tells us. And the word tells us that Jesus is the one who did the creating, so he should know. Mark 10 reiterates the same thing. But from the beginning of the creation of God, made them male and female. It was on. Now, we're told in Genesis 5, verse 3, that Adam lived 130 years and had children. And by the way, interestingly, we're told there that he had children in his own likeness, after his image. See, Adam was made in the image of God. We've all been made in the image of Adam until we are recreated when we're born again in the image of God. <clears throat> then we talked about Seth, that he lived 105 years, begat children and so on. And then we're given the, the total time of his life, uh, and the same for Enos. So we're given this detail. Genesis 5 gives us all this picture. When we put it all together, oops, go back one. When we put it all together, we can actually look at the ages of these individuals. Now, some people have a problem and they say, well, nobody could live that long. Well, you've got to think about the fact that this was a world without London buses and taxis polluting the air. Although you saw in the news last week that London is now already, for the year, way over its pollution level. And um, uh, Mr. Khan has come out and, and declared a kind of a, uh, an emergency situation with the amount of pollution that's in London. And uh, London's not the only country. I'm sure you've seen around the world places that are just engulfed in, in, in all sorts of uh, man-made pollution and so on. But you think of a world without those things. Think of a world without any genetic problems, issues, deformities or whatever. You have Adam and Eve created perfect. You know, a lot of the problems we suffer from are man-made. We 
of course, are interested in the money. So we'll spray things onto the crops to make them grow better and, and so on. And, of course, then we find out that actually they can be harmful to humans. And, you know, how many of the problems we have are a result of man's greed, just trying to make more money? So it's really not a problem to understand that men could have lived a lot longer. And we'll talk a little bit later. When we get into to chapter 2, probably next week, uh, sorry, the week after we'll probably get to chapter 2, uh, you know, we'll talk there about what the Garden of Eden was like and the subsequent conditions in the earth. Very different than what it is now. And there's good evidence, scientific evidence, to corroborate that. After the flood, we're also given the, the time spans. You notice how much the, the ages drop down after the flood. The world is a very different place after the flood. We'll come back and talk about these things in subsequent sessions. But I just want to highlight that the world had this view and belief, because of what the Bible revealed, that the earth wasn't that old. In fact, back in the um, 15th, 16th century, Archbishop James Usher calculated from scripture the date of creation to be October the 23rd, 404 BC. Now, I'm not sure where you can be that precise, not that bothered about being that precise, but actually, from the dates we're given in scripture, it means that we go back roughly from now about 6,000 years. And that would be what the Bible indicates as the, the date for creation. So, what was it that led the world to suddenly discard what the Bible said, which they believed for such a long time. Now, the world will say, oh, but we suddenly, we understood science, and so therefore we now know things. Well, yeah, that's true, you know some things, but Immanuel Kant, 1755, made this comment, some four billion years ago, the sun had ejected a tail or a filament, a material that called and collected and thus formed the planets. This theory, known as the nebula hypothesis, has gained widespread acceptance. 21 years earlier, a gentleman by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg had written a book which was in Latin. I'm not going to try and pronounce the title. But this is interesting because he was a, a mining engineer with a wide range of interested, uh, interests. Rather, and he also claimed to have psychic powers. He claimed confirmation of his nebula hypothesis from seances with men on Jupiter and Saturn and places more distant. This is your foundation for the idea of the nebula hypothesis. And by the way, Swedenborg has actually also gone up to Oxford, sorry, to Cambridge, uh, and spent time with Edmund Halley a little bit before this. So started getting into astronomy, Halley being the one named the comet, you know, Halley's comet. Halley, no issue with him as such. I mean, he was an astronomer. But Swedenborg got interested in these things, and then later the seances revealed to him how the universe was formed and so on. So we've got to be a little bit sceptical. A man by the name of uh, Pierre Simon Laplace then lent his endorsement to Kant's theory. He was a mathematician, but he kind of just went along with that without checking the maths behind it. And so the nebula hypothesis gained this real kind of respectability in the scientific community despite serious mathematical flaws. The idea that this filament has come off the sun and split up into these little bits and they've become the planets and so on. and Lots of really serious scientific issues with that. And yet, you'll find often it's still taught, it's still in some school textbooks and so on. A little bit after this, we've got James Hutton comes on the scene. He was a Scottish geologist. Now, he is noted for formulating two kinds of ideas. This uniformitarianism, I mentioned that earlier, uh, and the Plutonist school of thought. I don't want to bore you too much with all these details, but I just want to highlight this idea of Plutonic theory is the geologic theory proposed by Hutton around the turn of the 19th century that volcanic activity was the source of rocks on the surface of the earth. It was named for Pluto, the ancient Roman god of the underworld, uh, and it replaced Abraham Werner's Neptunism theory, which claimed that rocks had originated from a great flood and were basically sedimentary in origin. You see, we shifted from a view put forward by the Bible, supported by science, to a view put forward by a man, supported by, well, nothing, really. The idea of uniformitarianism is one are the most basic principles of modern geology. The observation that fundamentally the same geological processes that operate today also operated in the past. And it says that the kind of the features we have on Earth really have just been very, very slowly formed over long periods of time. It's interesting because look at this. This is actually a quote from Wikipedia, which is not necessarily the best of sources for uh, things, but actually it just gives a good indication of what the, the, the groundswell of opinion is. And it says this, Uniformitarianism is one of the most basic principles of modern geology, the observation that fundamentally the same geological... Pro How can you observe these things? These aren't observed. 
You see, they're basing it on pure opinion. And ultimately, that was rooted in a mindset that did not want to believe what the Bible said. We then have Charles Lyle. He's born in uh, Kinordi in Scotland. Now, he went to Exeter College, Oxford, um, <clears throat> and Lyle encountered geology as a serious profession under the wing of William Buckland, as a naturalist. Uh, by 1827, he'd abandoned his study of the law, embarked on a long geological career. And that then resulted in the widespread acceptance of the ideas proposed by James Hutton and so on. So they all start building one on another. And Charles Lyle is responsible for a very famous book, Principles of Geology. Uh, it became very, very influential. He came up with this idea, the argument that the present is the key to the past. I, what we see in the world today is the key to the past. We don't see lots of major cataclysmic events, so therefore there can't ever have been them. Well, the Bible actually argues the other way. The Bible says that the past is the key to the present. When we look at the world, we can deduce from that the way things are now because of what has happened. And so he comes up again with these enormously long spans of time that get put forward, and he became a really powerful influence on Charles Darwin. And so Darwin takes one of his, a copy of his book onto the Beagle as he goes off and starts to look at the world through these distorted human wisdom eyes. Okay, and that then leads him to start questioning and thinking all these things. So Darwin actually, in a letter, is quoted as saying, Disbelief crept over me on a very slow rate, but the last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress. That's what happens. You know, the world will propose something, they'll keep hammering it, we get used to it, and suddenly it gets accepted. Isn't that what the government does? They want to bring in something, they'll bring in a law, we all reject it. They'll bring in it again, it gets rejected, they'll bring in a third, fourth time, and we go, oh, okay. This kind of idea, we, we kind of give in after a while. Darwin gradually had his mind changed. Now, you probably be familiar from remember back in school, the geologic column. Do you know where you find that? In the textbooks. That's the only place you find it. It doesn't exist in nature anywhere. There isn't a single location in the world where you can go and you can find all of these rock layers in the order that they're supposed to be. This is purely a man-made invention. And I challenge you, go find any occasion or any, any situation, any place in the world where you can actually find this. There isn't any. Let's read this quote to you. In about 1830, Charles Lyell, Paul de Hayes, and Henrik George Born independently developed a biostratic technique, this is the geology column, for dating the Cenozoic deposits based upon relative proportions. That's when they did it. They started to try and put things in order, categorizing fossils and so on. And strangely, little effort has been made to test this assumption. And this failure leaves the method vulnerable to circularity. I want to show you how ridiculous this is. Quote, from the American Journal of Science. It says, the intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rocks. You see, the way it is, we'll look at a rock layer, we'll find a particular fossil in it. We know because of these theories that the fossil lived X number of million years ago. That means the rock layer has to be that old. How do we know that? Well, because of this creature that's in there. How do we know how old that creature is? Well, because it's in that rock layer. Do you see the problem? It's just circular reasoning. The, ge the geologist has never bothered to think of a good reply, feeling the explanations are not worth the trouble as long as the work brings results. Again, American Journal of Science. <laughs> it cannot be denied that from a strictly philosophical standpoint, geologists are here arguing in a circle. The succession of organisms has been determined by a study of their remains embedded in the rocks, and the relative ages of the rocks are determined by the remains of organisms that they contain. Same thing, just going round and round in circles. That's from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Dating methods. This is not how you find a partner. This is how they supposedly try and find the age of things. You often find, I was in an interesting conversation at work a little while ago, and they were talking about the age of the earth, and they were saying, how old do you think the earth is, Barry? And I knew they wanted me to say 6,000 years, because I knew they wanted to try and poke fun at me. And I'm not ashamed of, of what I believe or what the Bible says, of course, but I just said, well, how old do you think it is? And they came back with all these meanings. They said, okay, how, how would you know that? How would you prove it? Oh, because we've got carbon-14 dating. So great. So that doesn't help you. And they kind of looked at me. I said, go Google it. How far back can you get with carbon-14 dating? You're looking at the, the half-life of the life of the isotopes and things. And, and if you look at this, you can only carbon date on things that were once living. That's your first problem. So it doesn't work on rocks. And actually, even then, you can only go back about 50,000 years with carbon dating. That's the oldest possible date you could get with carbon dating. 
And even then there's some issues and some other assumptions that have to be made. So this guy went away, he came back and went, oh, okay. So they went away a few, and they came back a few minutes later, and they said, oh, well, maybe radiometric dating then. I said, okay, go and give me an example. And they came back. Actually, no, they didn't come back. They haven't come back. They still haven't come back. Another quote here. This is from New Scientist. Apart from very few modern examples, which are really archaeology, I can think of no cases of radioactive decay being used to date fossils. Ever since William Smith at the beginning of the 19th century, fossils have been and still are the best and most accurate method of dating and correlating the rocks in which they occur. <laughs> Do you see the problem again? Uh, and another quote here again in American Journal of Science. Radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. So you start with your theory and then you only accept things that support your theory. The rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately. I love that. Stratigraphy cannot avoid this kind of reason if it insists on using only temporal concepts because circularity is inherent in the derivation of time scales. And we go on. Again, the charge of circular reasoning in stratigraphy can be handled in various ways. It could be ignored as not the proper concern of the public. In other words, you don't have any right to question it. Or it could be denied by calling down the law of evolution. Or it could be admitted as a common practice, or it could be avoided by pragmatic reasoning. There's another quote just to finish this bit. Are the authorities maintaining on the one hand that evolution is documented by all geology, and on the other, that geology is documented by evolution? Isn't this a circular argument? Yes, it is. You see, you'll find this. If you start to talk about evolution, then various groups will say, well, the geologists have got the evidence. And the geologists will say, well, the biologists have got the evidence. And none of them have got the evidence. Again, this whole idea of index fossils, again, depends on what layer they occur. I'm not going to bore you with all this stuff. You know, interestingly enough, we've actually got these things like trilobites. You've probably heard of this. Uh, you know, they probably formed 500 to 600 million years ago. And uh, there you are with a trilobite inside a footprint. What does that tell you? Well, they can't be that old. Because if somebody's squashed one by standing on it, man was around when these things were around, and if man was around, then they can't be the millions and millions of years old that they are purported to be. Graptolites, another supposedly index fossil for 410 million-year-old rocks. But they're still found alive in the South Pacific. So how do you deduce that they're 410 million years old if they're still alive today? It's just absolute nonsense. Lobe fin fish are supposedly proof. If you find a lobe fin fish fossil, then it has to be somewhere in the region of 325 million years old. Uh, and there's a lady swimming with one. You see, so much is built on assumption. And a lot of these things, when they were put forward, they hadn't discovered things like the coelacanth, which is in the picture there. And then they find them, and then they keep it all very quiet, and they don't want to talk about it. Now, this is a tremendous problem, if I may put it that way. We have a tree there going standing upright through rock strata. Explain that, would you? How can you have a tree standing upright, a fossilized tree, through different layers of rocks that supposedly were laid down over millions of years? And there's, there's, there's loads of examples of this. You know, you've got a couple of choices. Either the tree stood upright for millions of years while the sediment formed around them, which of course wouldn't work because the top of the tree would have rotted, or that the trees grew through hundreds of feet of sedimentary rock. It's just ridiculous, it doesn't work. Okay. I'm just going to go very quickly through some of these things because I just want to just highlight that there is a lot of really strong, good scientific arguments to challenge the assumptions that the world has put forward. And all of these things just go to underline that what the Bible says is true. Radio polonium halos, I think this is one of my favorite. Okay. <clears throat> Radio polonium, polonium has a very short, very, very short, kind of in terms of like milliseconds, half-life. Imagine it, that you've got Alka-Seltzer, you know the little tablets, you drop them in water and they start all bubbling up. If you could see, for example, a block of ice, and you could see the bubbles in there, what you'd know for sure is that that was frozen very quickly. Because otherwise the bubbles wouldn't be there. If it was over a period of time, all the bubbles would have gone. Yeah, the whole thing would have dissolved. So the fact that you have those bubbles there are a good indication that, well, they're proof that this was frozen quickly. It's exactly the same thing with polonium halos. If you chop open granite, inside you will find these little rings. And it says these little polonium halos kind of are exploding effectively. It proves that the granite was formed in an instant, just as the Bible says. Geologists and evolutionists and so on, they have no answer to this. 
the guy, Robert Gentry, that really made this popular has become rejected now by the scientific community, even though prior to that he was very accepted. Because this is just one of those clear examples that just shows the stupidity of the world's views and these theories that have been put forward. Spin rate of the Earth is another thing. The Earth is gradually slowing down. It's about a thousand miles an hour at the equator. Um, you may remember this was actually back in 1990. We had it this year. Do you remember at the turn of the um, the, the year? The watch we had an extra second added. Remember that? We do that because we're trying to keep everything in sync. Because the earth is gradually slowing down. Now that's not a problem if you believe what the Bible says. But it's a major, major problem if actually you have a millions of years old earth. Because the earth would have been going so fast if you just carry on that same chart backwards and look at how fast the earth would have been spinning, because we know how fast it's slowing down. You'd end up with such powerful winds with the earth spinning so fast that nothing would live and survive. And maybe that's what happened to the dinosaurs. Maybe they just got thrown off. Not enough bones is another one. And in uh, Science vs. Evolution, copies at the back, free to take, please do so. It's available from the website as well. Just, there's an article in there by a man by the name of Grant Jeffrey, uh, just highlighting the problem we've got. There are not enough bones in the world. You know, if you go out and look, there is not... If you consider how many people were supposed to have lived over this period of time, there aren't enough bones everywhere. Other problems just to highlight. Um, we've got these galaxies... These spiral galaxies. But the fact is, they shouldn't be like they are now. They should have flattened out. These curves, these spirals shouldn't be there if the universe is billions of years old. Saturn rings also, there's another issue there, again, largely formed by dust and so on. But again, scientists have concluded that actually the rings are unstable. They can't be billions of years old. They still don't know how they got formed, but Jupiter's moon, Ganymede, has got a very strong magnetic field, uh, and it's generated by the liquid motion of the molten metal inside it. But it should have called by now if it was billions of years old. It hasn't. Strong arguments. The population of the Earth, for a start, you know, you look at a population chart. I mean, we believe, of course, the Bible tells us about 6,000 years ago, God created everything. Around about 4,400 years ago, there was a great flood. And the world started again, population-wise. And that makes total sense of the world we've got today. But if the earth is millions of years old, and if man has been on the earth for millions of years, then why only in the last few hundred years have we seen the population explosion? Why not before that? Some of you may know Dr. Vij Sidera. He used to come along here um, to the fellowship uh, for a while. Um, I mean, he's written a couple of books, the, the Evolution Myth, uh, One Small Speck book that he wrote. It's great. He argues in there that when you think of tools, if you create or make something, what's the first thing you try and do? Make a better version of it. And he's saying, yeah, the suggestion that man put up with these very primitive tools for such a long time before trying to improve them, it doesn't make sense. Everything we know. Uh, by the way, you know, apparently you can fit the entire world's population on the Isle of Wight. Uh, I'm not sure that that's a good idea, but apparently you could do that. Uh, you know, the world is not overly populated, as some people say, but actually when you look, if you consider the world being millions of years old, why aren't there more people on the earth? The moon is gradually moving away from the earth. I'm not sure whether you knew that. That means it used to be closer. Yeah. Uh, the moon obviously has big effects on the, the gravitational uh, effects on the earth, on tides and so on. If the earth was closer, we know the rate that it's moving away. You work this out. Uh, and there's various information you can get on the internet and so on. Um, information for, uh, sorry, Institute of Creation Research has got some articles on this and other as well. You know, if the moon was closer, the tides on the earth would have been so great that you'd have drowned twice a day because of the huge tidal waves that would cover the land. Uh, and you can only comfortably drown once a day. Uh, I think you'd agree. All these, these issues. We're just going to go through oil pressure. Rocks can only hold the kind of pressure for about 10,000 years or less. Why do we still have oil in the, the way we do? Magnetic fields. Our magnetic fields are getting weaker. Again, you track that back. It will find for the Earth being, as the Bible says, but if you go for millions of years, you've got real issues and problems with that. It just can't be millions of years old. Fossils are another issue. Again, there's an article in here about fossils and why they do not prove evolution at all. The Sahara Desert, interestingly, is kind of growing. It's increasing year on year. But you track it back, it's about 4,000 years old. Isn't that interesting? That's when the Bible says the flood occurred around about that time. So the oldest desert we have is about that, that age. Which goes through. If you look at the oldest tree that we know on the earth, it's about 4,000 years old. 
Why don't we have anything older than that? Well, again, that fits perfectly with what the Bible says. Comets are another one. Um, they have relatively short life expectancy, about 10,000 years. So why do we still have comets going around? Mountains. Gradually, the rain falls on the mountains. They erode. They go into the sea. Um, they'd be rode flat. It's been estimated in 14 million years. But you'll notice we still have mountains in the world. Why? How? If the earth is millions of years. The amount of salt in the water is another one. Gradually the, the salt content builds up, but nothing to support the millions of years theory. Tightly bent rock strata. I think this is interesting. I look at a picture like that and you see these, these kind of pictures. How can anybody look at that and tell me that that is the result of millions of years? That is the result of water, i.e. the flood, laying down all this material, just dumping it and gradually it dries out and hardens. I mean, there's no other explanation for these things, and yet people will try and use this to support their views and theories and so on. Uh, the coral reef, by the way, the oldest coral reef we know uh, is, of course, off Australia. Um, a study conducted after World War II showed the growth rate, and it's not millions of years. It's still tall, by the way. Uh, it goes back about 4,200 years to just after the flood. Interesting, isn't it? The amount of mud on the sea floor again, is increasing. But again, fine for a biblical framework, but doesn't work for the geologist or the evolutionary framework that's proposed and taught in schools and things and so on. And the amount of helium in the atmosphere. And there are many more. I just want to highlight there are real, real problems with the world's views. But remember where this all started. It started ultimately with somebody having seances with people on Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and so on. You know, and those ideas all kind of build up and went on. So, you know, you start to see that Satan has done his best to try and pull people away from the truth. He doesn't want people looking at the Bible and going, you know, actually, the Bible's true. But the Bible is true. Okay, I'm just going to close with just a couple of observations. <clears throat> In verse 3, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I love this statement. But I think there's something that often is overlooked here. And I did a study on this some, some years ago, and I think this is fascinating. Because if we actually look at the Hebrew words that make up this sentence, effectively, to, to, to transliterate exactly what we have, it's said Elohim, Elohim being the plural noun that's used as a singular, it's the name of God, but also implies God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Said God, be light, be light. You can see that we've got the same Hebrew words repeated. Be light, be light. That would be the exact expression of what we have in the Hebrew. Now, I've got no problem with the idea of God said, let there be light, and there was light. But I want to just get you to think about something. Because I think we can also translate this, let the light illuminate. I think that's very interesting. Because I would argue that light wasn't created. Light was pre-existent. And let me give you my reasons for saying that. See, for the light to now illuminate, it had to already exist. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, it had to exist for that to happen, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We look in Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says there, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. It's interesting. The word we have for create darkness is the Hebrew word bara. It means out of nothing. But interesting, the word we have for form is the Hebrew word yatsa. It means to mold or to form into something. But it implies something pre-existent to form or to work with. God says, I form the light and create darkness. How do you measure darkness? You can't. Darkness is just the absence of light. It's an interesting study. You can go on to talk about that where it says, I make peace and create evil. Well, God obviously forms peace, but evil only exists because of the presence of good, in the same way as darkness only exists because of the presence of light. John eight twelve. Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We read these things, and almost we kind of miss what's being said. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Remember that the sun wasn't created straight away? You know, in the new Jerusalem, there won't be a sun. This then is the message we have heard from him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that verse from Revelation says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did light in it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of the world. 
You see, Jesus, I believe, was that pre-existent light, or light was pre-existent in the person of Jesus. God commands that light to shine, it does so. And light simply then illuminates exactly what Genesis tells us. Jesus, the pre-existent one, who is the light, created all things. Now, this is just a curious thing, but apparently, quantum physicists will tell us that every particle has an antiparticle. If you get a particle and an antiparticle, and they collide, they annihilate each other, but they produce a photon of light. That's the smallest unit of light you can get. And what they suggest is it's a reversible reaction. Now, this is just theoretic, but it's just interesting. Because the implication here is, from a purely quantum physics perspective, if you have light, they argue you create matter. Well, isn't that interesting? Because isn't that what the Bible tells us? That Jesus, who is the light of the world, created everything. I, I think that's fascinating. Okay. Just to conclude, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. This brings us to the end of our verses for this morning. I just want to look at this because the evening is the Hebrew word Erev and the morning is the Hebrew word Boker. And we translate them as evening or morning and that's fine. But it's interesting that neither of them are recorded on day seven. Did you know that? What's different about day seven? Well, God rested on day seven, didn't he? And it's interesting, and this is just drawn from some of Chuck Misler's studies, but I think this is fascinating too. The word error, it just means uh, obscuration or mixture. The idea is you are going from, or you're in darkness. The word has this idea of kind of twilight, or approaching darkness, or sunset, marking the duration and purity in Leviticus 15 is used, when a ceremonially unclean person became clean again, so coming to the end of that that time. And for Hebrews, of course, it's the beginning of their day. The, the Hebrew word boka has the idea of becoming discernible, distinguishable, and so on. Or the dawn or the morning. So when we look at the account we have in Genesis, we have at the end of the first day, we have evening and morning, or erev and boka. We have obscurity and order the first day. Remember the earth was without form and void? The anticipation is God is waiting to create. At the end of the first day, we've gone from a state of disorder to a little bit more order. And then we carry on. And the second day, we have Erev and Boker. We have disorder leading to more order. The third day, we have the same. Again, disorder leading to more order. And gradually, as God goes through the week, the earth is becoming, creation is becoming what God wanted it to be. Until we get, finally, to the seventh day. And there is no Erev and Boker because God has finished his work of creation. The universe is now as God intended it to be. Everything is complete. Up until the time of Genesis 3, when as a result of sin, suddenly... A new set of laws get introduced, such as the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything is now running down. You see, God got the universe ready. Everything was perfect, and God intended this world to be perfect for Adam, Eve, and their offspring, and so on. And uh, Oswald Chambers highlights and says that God's intention was that Adam was to turn his innocence to obedience by a series of moral choices. Just like Jesus did. You remember Jesus was born, he was perfect, lived his life, perfect, no sin, we get to that point in the Mount of Transfiguration. And at that point, Jesus could have gone home. Job done. Jesus had proved that it was possible for a man to live as perfect before God. Adam and Jesus both started at the same level. Adam sinned. Jesus didn't. Adam brought sin. Jesus brought life. But Jesus didn't just go home from the Mount of Transfiguration. Because he loved us, he came back down. He came down the mountain, down to Caesarea Philippi. And that's when he announces to the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to betray me, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Let's leave it there for this morning. We'll pick up from there next week. All of those slides, everything will be on the website if you want to go back through those bits I skipped over there, but I don't want to make it too heavy. I just want to encourage you to trust the Bible. Every single word, every single detail is there by deliberate design. And we need not be ashamed because when you look at what the world has got, It's nothing. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true from the beginning. We thank you, Lord, that your word is forever settled in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that it's pure, purified seven times. And Lord, we just pray that you give us that confidence and trust and faith to believe your word, to take you as you have said. 
And that, Father, these things would encourage us, Lord, in our walk and our faith. That we wouldn't be intimidated by man or by man's wisdom. For, Lord, you've made foolish the wisdom of the world. But, Lord, what a great God we serve. A God who has created all things. Who made this world perfect. And yet knowing that sin would come into this world and it would take the death of your son to rescue and redeem a people for yourselves. But Lord, we thank you this morning that we have the privilege of being part of that work that you are doing. Lord, we should feel very special because to you we are very special. We just thank you, Lord, and just give us a greater love for our Savior, we pray. Be with us as we go through this week and keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that we ask it in his precious name. Amen.